kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into, the, into his vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more. But they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us, who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. It is a delight to be with you today. I've been preaching in some other places for the past couple of weeks, and I'll just say I am so glad to be here, to be back with you today. Uh, God is doing something amazing uh, at Sojourn, and I'm so thankful for it, and it is good to be with you again. My name is uh, Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here and have the privilege of serving here uh, as one of your pastors in this congregation. Well, all of us think that we want a world that is fair. Every one of us, if we took a survey, I want a world that is fair. But the truth is, what we want is a world that is fair in our favor. That's what we really want. Let me give you an example of this. A couple of weeks ago, driving on I-65 to Nashville, if you've driven that road, you know. You cannot make it to Nashville without something going wrong. It's just always something going to go wrong on that road. And so we drive, we're driving, we're south of Bowling Green at this point, and suddenly we see nothing but red brake lights as far as we can see. And so we pull, stop, and, uh, and, and we just sit there for about an hour. And laugh after an hour, somebody, some people start doing, if you do this, don't tell me about it. I don't want to know. They think their schedule is more important than everybody else's, so they pull out on the shoulder and race forward from there. Well, then truckers start to pull out onto that shoulder and people start driving out into the ditches to get around. So they're flying around at this point and people are getting angry with one another. This is getting ready to turn into highway hunger games in just a few minutes. We're at three hours into this and still traffic has not moved. And so an hour even goes on beyond that. And, and we're waiting still four and a half hours, sitting there in traffic, waiting and not able to move. Now, what happens then is glorious and wonderful because the traffic suddenly started to surge forward. And as it surged forward, what happened was, is we noticed that all those people that had raced down the shoulder, there was a big sign on the shoulder. 
and there was a culvert behind, beside the sign so you couldn't go around it. And all those people were sitting there trying to get in and nobody would let them into the traffic. <laughs> nobody would. Everybody flies by and just kind of waves them behind as they go by. And by the end of it, there is a guy in his pickup truck right beside that sign. He's leaning out his window. He is shaking his fist at the traffic going by because nobody will let him in and it was glorious. It was beautiful because the last became first and the first became last and I loved it. Now a few days later, I'm with my children at an amusement park in Orlando and we have fast passes. I like fast passes. You get to go to the front of the line when you have a fast pass. It's a slow day. So there's a particular amusement park ride, a roller coaster that my third daughter wants to ride. And I would have wanted to ride it 25 years ago. Now I just love my kid, okay? So I'm there to get on that, or that with her. And so we go, come up to the front and they have shut down the fast pass line. It's because it's such a slow day that everything's fast that day. But still, I have a fast pass. I deserve to get in the fast pass line. I have a fast pass. I am here rubbing shoulders with people who didn't get their fast passes. I have been unfast passed on that ride. And I am upset at that point. Not very, just kind of annoyed at that point. And then I begin to smile because realize the last became first and the first became last. And when I was the one sent to the back, it didn't feel as good. It didn't feel as good when I was the one sent to the back of the line. Now, all of us think we want a world that's fair, but what we really want is a world that is fair in our favor, and that's really not fairness at all. It's our own self-centered determination to get what we want on our terms, in our time, in our way. We like the first will be last as long as we're getting moved to the front of the line. We don't like it when it moves us to the back of the line. And in this parable, what Jesus does is to shatter our fixation on getting to the front of the line toward getting what we want on our terms, in our time, and he replaces this fixation with the gift of himself here and now and the promise of a kingdom that is yet to come. And what we find that God gives in the present time is not the payoff of a future kingdom, but the presence of the king. Now, this is, a, this is a tough text. I'll just be honest. I have wrestled with this text harder over the past two weeks, probably, than I've wrestled with the text in a long time. Because the more I dug in, the less this text was willing to say what I wanted it to say. Because here's what I expected I was going to get out of this. It's going to be a simple sermon about our place in God's kingdom doesn't depend on how much we do, but on his sheer extravagant grace. And that is true, and that is in this text. But the text kept wanting to say more than that, and it's convicting. Because really, it, it, it digs in deeper. That God's kingdom is a kingdom that shatters our perception of fairness and kills all of our attempts to claw our way to the front of the line. You may say, that, that's not me. I'm not wanting to get to the front of the line and anything, except that uh, you ever have that time when you look at somebody else and you compare with somebody else and say, why did they get that and I didn't? You ever have that moment when you put something up on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and you keep refreshing to see if anybody commented on it or liked it? You ever do that? You ever have that moment when you're just not contented and you're thinking, if only I had that, that that person has, everything would be good in my life if I had that. All those clawing 
your way toward the front of the line. And that's what Jesus deals with in this parable. But to understand this parable, we've got to look at what happened prior to the parable. And it's a section that ends just like the parable ends. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Let me describe the situation. What has happened just previously in the way that this is structured is a young man with great wealth has stepped along beside Jesus on a road and said to Jesus, what good must I do to have life into the ages, eternal life? What good must I do at that point? Now, this is a very wealthy man, and I want you to imagine something for a moment. As some of you were walking down Shelby Street a little bit earlier, let's imagine that somebody pulled up beside you, a candy apple red Ferrari, and they rolled down the window, and you could see them flipping through a roll of $500 bills right there. And they said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Now, I think your first impulse might be to say, you see that church right down there? They could use some donations, and that would be a good place for you to start. Now, hopefully you wouldn't say that, but here's what you would be in the same way for myself. We would be impressed with his wealth and distracted by his wealth. Jesus isn't impressed. The guy comes in and he says, keep all of God's laws. The guy says, did that. We don't know if he really did or not, but the point is that the guy thinks he did. And then Jesus leans in the window of that Ferrari and he says to the guy, look, you want to be complete, perfect, get it all right, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now he didn't say that because that's what we all are supposed to do. He said that because that's what stood in this man's way. And it says in chapter 19 and verse 22, the young man went away grieved because he really loved that Ferrari. Sort of, that's what it says. And the disciples are looking at this as he rolls off and their eyes are wide open and their mouths are wide open because they can't believe that Jesus let this guy get away. They think he could have paid for their whole Jesus for King campaign. One tweet from this guy's social media account could have bumped Jesus up 10 points in the Galilean Gallup polls. But the real reason they are shocked by this is not so much what the man could have provided. It is because in the minds of many religious people in this day, riches were a sign that you were right with God. And Jesus has just dismissed a man who clearly is on the right side of God's blessings. And then Jesus makes a shocking declaration in verse 23. Hear what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. They said, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. It's so easy to miss the shock of this. And some interpreters of this text, they come up with some things. Well, maybe there was a really low gate in the wall at Jerusalem that a camel, and they called it the needle's eye, and the camel had to, no, Jesus is saying what he really says here. He's saying it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he says, and that's what he means in this text. He's saying that apart from miraculous intervention, this cannot happen. If Jesus were saying this today, he might say something like, it's easier for you to push an elephant through the doggy door in your house than for a rich man to get into God's kingdom. And why is this? Why? Well, here's one of the reasons. We will never yearn for a world that is yet to come 
until we sense the deep brokenness of the world we are in. We will not yearn for a world that is to come unless we see and sense the deep brokenness of the world we are in. And most of us here possess much. And those of us who possess much money or privilege or power, whatever it is you have possessed much of, tend to be insulated from the full brokenness of the world, from the poverty and the injustice around. The closer you are to the front of the line in the world standards, the less you're able to long for the kingdom that Jesus promises to bring. See, most of us here are wealthy, at least in some area, maybe not every area, but in some area. And it is difficult for, to long for a kingdom that Jesus has promised to bring if you've never had an empty stomach. You've never wondered how you're going to pay for your child's medicine. You've never been on the raw end of injustice or prejudice. It is hard for you to recognize and to long for, the, know the brokenness of this world and to long for the next one. Wherever there is abundance, it is easy to become blind to brokenness. But we will not long for God's kingdom that's going to be fulfilled in the future unless we understand and sense the deep brokenness here and now. The disciples here, it's hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom and they say, who they can be saved? Jesus says, well, God can do this, but while he's, Jesus is saying this, Peter is back there calculating. Because Peter has just occurred to him, if the rich aren't at the front of the line, then somebody else has got to be at the front of the line. It must be that the poor are at the front of the line in God's kingdom. And Jesus, I gave up everything to follow you. Yes, I'm at the front of the line. What do I get? What do I get? What do I get? That's in essence what Peter does right here. Here's what he says. Peter said in reply, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, if you look carefully, in the white space between verse 27 and 28, there's a tiny little picture there of Jesus doing a face palm at this point. Because Peter has totally missed the point at this point. He's, he's totally missed it. He doesn't understand what's going on. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, in the new world, the, the regeneration, the making new, a new life of all things, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Peter is so focused on how to get the greatest reward for himself and his fellow disciples right now how to find the front of the line. In essence, he's saying, how do we get this? I know you're bringing the kingdom really soon. How do we get this when it comes? And Jesus says, when all things are made alive again, there will be a reward, not only for you, but for everybody who follows me. He's reminding him that the kingdom, yes, it begins now. Jesus initiates and inaugurates the kingdom now, but the full rewards of the kingdom don't come till later. And when the rewards come, they won't be based on who's in the front of the line from the world's perspective or the back of the line. Because many who seem like they're first in this world will be at the back of the line. And many who seem like they're at the back will be at the front. And we like this in some ways, and yet if we are honest, we do not like the idea of a reward that has to wait till the end. We don't like this. That's why there is in our world the lie 
that is known as prosperity theology or prosperity gospel. It's this, this claim, this suggestion that, that God's will for you is always for you to have health and wealth in this life if only you have the right faith and send the right funds to the right television preacher. And Jesus says, no, the full reward is at the end when I make all things right and new. What Jesus has to say to us for now is in John 16, in this world you will have suffering. What the apostles said is Acts 14, it is necessary to endure many hardships to enter the kingdom. But even if we reject the lie of the prosperity gospel, we still have a tendency, a longing to get what we want here and now, get the payoffs in this life. It's when we cry out, God, why won't you give this to me? Don't you remember all the things I've done for you? Or we give simple answers to things that are complicated, things that are difficult. Do these 10 things, these 10 practices, and you'll have good mental health if you do these 10 things. The truth is though, life is difficult. Emotions and bodies are complicated. And sometimes you do all the right things and get help from those around you, but the darkness in your life never completely lifts. And we live sometimes in brokenness that just can't be fixed in this life. Part of recognizing the truth about God making all things right and new in the end is recognizing that we are living in brokenness here and now. And that God's not gonna solve all the brokenness in this life. God has never promised to fix it all in this life. His kingdom has come, but the full reward comes later. And he doesn't give us blessings according to what we try to do in our time, on our terms, according to what we think we deserve. He gives it in his time, on his terms, according to what he has done for us. And while we are waiting, Life is beautiful, life is good, but yet it's also broken and complicated. And instead of running from the brokenness around us, recognize that one purpose of the brokenness that we experience is to point us toward the time when God will make all things right and new. To give us a contrast between this world and the next world so that we long for the next one more. And that brings us to the parable that Jesus tells, which is a parable of the kingdom. It says the kingdom of the heavens, that this is like, the story I'm telling you is like that. And the kingdom is God's reign over God's people in God's place. It is present in Christ. It is present wherever God reigns in the lives of his people, but it is not yet fulfilled. And Jesus tells this parable to drive home the point that God does not give us his blessings in our time, on our terms, according to what we think we deserve but according to what he has purposed. And his kingdom is a kingdom that shatters our perceptions of fairness and kills our attempts to claw our way to the front of the line. And this parable makes that point in a scandalous, scandalous way. I want you to imagine for a moment, it's mid-September, it's time for the grape harvest. And a man goes to the marketplace When he goes to the marketplace, he finds some people early in the morning who are looking for work. They are there looking for work, trying to find somebody to employ them, and he employs them. And he says, I'll give you one denarius for this day's labor. That is a fair and honest wage for one day's work in their culture and in their time. And so they follow him, they go, they're glad to have this work, and he goes back later, about three hours, hires some more workers. But what he says to them is, I will give you whatever is just or whatever is right. 
He doesn't promise them a particular wage. Instead, these workers are trusting in the character and the call of the master. And so he does this all day. He does it at noon and three and then five o'clock, an hour before quitting time, he goes out and gathers some more workers. And he gathers them together. And at the end of the day, the master says to his manager, start paying them, but pay them so that those that came last are paid first. Now, have you ever given your kids a snack and the other kids are not paying attention to their own snack? They're looking to see what everybody else got in their snack. That's exactly what's happening right here. Is those who are at the back of the line, those who had worked all day, they are peeking up there to see what these guys got who only worked an hour. I think they're going to get a partial day's labor, an asarion or a pandion, or different coins that they would give them to give a partial day's labor in that day. And they see that those guys up front get a full denarius, full day's wage, a fair full day's wage for working only an hour. And these guys are excited. We're going to make bank. We are really going to be able to make some money. They're patting each other on the back. They get on their iPhones and they start filling up their Amazon cart at that point because we are going to get at least a full week's wages just for this day's labor. And then they start to notice that the next people also get a denarius and the next ones and the next ones. And they pull out their phone and say, honey, about that TV that's gonna be delivered tomorrow, we might need to send it back. And they get up there and they get exactly what they were promised, which is one denarius, one. Now this is scandalous. This is unfair. This is completely scandalous. And, and, and I've read the commentaries on this and, and it's so amazing how some of those who are paid to comment on this text and write books about it, try everything they can to sidestep the scandal of this. One of them said, that those who were hired early probably just hadn't worked hard enough. That was why the later ones had to be hired, so they were given all the same for that reason. Another one said these new workers that came later had more energy and were able to work harder, so they deserved what they got. The, most, the biggest stretch I found was this one. He said that they were probably allowed to eat grapes as they worked. And so since those fewer grapes who came later in the day, those people were able to be paid more for that anything to do to get us out of the scandal that this is unfair from any human perspective. And so what we see in this is that the workers respond as we might respond. They only worked an hour, yet you have made them the same or made them equal with us. You made them equal. You made them the same. But when the master hired them, they were delighted to work for one denarius for the whole day. And now the master fulfills exactly what he promised them and it was not enough. You made them the same. We want something more than the fulfillment of what you promised. We had fast passes. We ought to get more. And he says to them, are you looking at me with an evil eye? It's a way of saying, are you cursing me in your greed and your jealousy? Can't I do what I want with my own money. Can't I do what I want? And then he says to them, take it and go. Go. He sends them away. They've demanded to be at the front of the line. But they've been sent away from the master after he pays them. 
This is the answer to Peter's question. Jesus is in essence saying, you think you'll get more because you were in the front of the line? You really think so? You think that the reward that you're going to get is going to come greater to you because you're at the front of the line? No, my reward comes in my time, on my terms. Trust me and receive what I give. The reward doesn't come in full right now. It comes at the end and it doesn't come according to what you think you deserve. It comes according to the will of the one who owns the vineyard. God's kingdom is a kingdom that shatters all of our perceptions of fairness and kills our attempts to claw our way to the front of the line. You see, what God had promised, what God in Christ had promised Peter when Jesus called him was himself and a task. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers for people. But once Peter starts plotting his way to the front of the line, he's no longer satisfied with what Jesus offered. He wants something more. And what God offers to us now is the gift of himself and of his presence. And this can't be given in portions based on how we perform or how long we serve. It is given in its fullness according to the plan of the master who owns it all. Now this text is not trying to tell you how to run your business. You start running your business this way, giving a full year's wages to people who work only one month, and you will eventually give up everything and lose everything for the sake of those you call, which actually is indeed what Jesus did. He ended up giving up everything for the sake of those he called. It says in Philippians that he emptied himself and became a servant, a slave. And on that cross, He took the punishment for all our blasphemous attempts to try to put ourselves at the front of the line. All our attempts to justify ourselves on the basis of our behavior and our works and our deeds. He took it all on himself in our place. And then in the empty tomb through his resurrection, he triumphed over death itself. And it didn't cost him a denarius per person. It cost him everything. And everything it cost, he gave to those who he would call. And he gave it to them and for them. What does this mean for our lives, though? What does this really mean? What do we do with this? I want to send you with three different things that are important for understanding this text. Live as if God himself is the only reward you need, because it is. As if the gift of God himself is the only reward you need, because it is. What God gives in this present time is not the full payoff of the kingdom, but the presence of the king. The workers who arrived first, they weren't satisfied to serve the master. They weren't satisfied to receive what he promised. They wanted what they thought they deserved. And you've done that and I've done that. God, I did this, why this? Why don't I have that after me having done all of this for you? I remember the time that this was just so deep and heavy in my own heart. We went on a mission trip, 2002. And at that time, we had dealt with a year or two of of wanting to have children but couldn't. We were in an adoption process. And while we were on a mission trip, they called and said, oh, the birth mother's changed her mind after the child was born. You don't have the child. And we're devastated by that. We've been on a mission trip, for goodness sake. I want to say to God, I've done everything right. We did the right things in our marriage, and yet you didn't give us this. 
And it happened then not only once, but twice more that same year. Went through three of those in one year of life. And I remember realizing, thinking, God, we don't deserve this. We're serving you. We're trying to serve you. We're trying to, to, to minister to people in your name. And in the midst of that, there was a point at which I was a pastor and I had to do a funeral for an infant who'd been murdered, which was just devastating at that moment. And what I came to this, the brokenness of feeling and recognizing is to come to a point that says, God, if you never give us what we're asking for, we will still serve you. You are enough and we will serve you. Now, I don't pretend for a moment that us doing that somehow solves all the brokenness. If you want to know the honest truth, 16 years later, there is still darkness and pain that I feel from that that I don't know that will ever go away as long as I live. It doesn't fix it, but it gives us a longing for the time when God will one day make all things right and new. And perhaps most of all, most of all, the awareness that in our lives right now, God gives us the gift of himself, and that is enough. That is enough for us to rely on him. And he does that not only in our light, but in our darkness. He is present in our darkness as well. See, sometimes we want to say to God, God, I deserve this. God, I want what I deserve. You don't ever want what you deserve. Because all you deserve before God is condemnation. And anything above and beyond that is a gift. Is a gift. We're all at the back of the line when it comes to God's kingdom. All of us. And we deserve nothing but condemnation. And God has given instead his, his grace. His grace. See, the, the foundation of sin in our hearts and lives is that we think, God, what you give me in yourself and in the gifts you've given me isn't enough. I've got to have something else. I need that too. That's the foundation of our sin. And the foundation of us becoming holy is to be able to say, God, you are with me and that is enough. That is enough for now. Your love is better than life. The second thing I want to point out to you is to encourage you long for the coming world when Christ makes all things new and let this longing cause you to seek a better world here and now. You know, there are times I'm not even sure we believe that Jesus is coming back. It's pretty much been reduced to a joke of some bad best-selling novels and Nicolas Cage movies. We don't deal with the fact that Jesus is coming back. And part of the reason we don't long for it enough is because of the fact that our present lives are comfortable. We don't see enough injustice and brokenness and notice it to long for a better world. But what do we do to long for the coming kingdom, the fulfillment of the kingdom in Christ? We do what Jesus did. When Jesus came to earth, he allied himself, he joined his life with those who were broken and at the back of the line. That's what he did. Why did he do that? Well, part of what happens when we join with those who are broken and at the back of the line and with their experiences of brokenness and injustice, then we learn for a kingdom that's yet to come. 
because they feel that brokenness. We feel that injustice. And I don't mean entering into people's lives as we often do and say, oh, you have needs, I'm here to fix you. No, it's another way of clawing your way to the front of the line. What I mean is that we enter into people's lives and say, I am here to be with you, to see the world through your eyes, to share in your brokenness. I'm here with you. And I wanna see the brokenness and share it with you. And sometimes we assume that if we long for and love the world that is yet to come, that somehow that will make us stop caring about this present world. But no, no. As we look forward to the world that is yet to come for what Christ will do in the future, as we look at that, we see the contrast between that and the world as it is, and it makes us want to transform this present world. That's what C.S. Lewis was saying when he said, historically, Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied in heaven. See that so deeply. I've been reading this month the history of the African-American spirituals, those songs that were shaped in the context of slavery and injustice. And here's something fascinating about them. Nearly half of those songs are focused on the world that is yet to come. Nearly half of them. And you know what? The singing of those songs did not cause anyone to long any less for freedom and injustice where they, and freedom and justice where they were. In fact, those songs became the template in some cases for the Underground Railroad. Those songs became revived in the 20th century for the Civil Rights Movement. They in fact became the something that pointed forward transformation of this life, even though they looked toward the next one. James Cone says this about them. He said, the spirituals represented the invasion of God into the gathered community of victims, empowering them with the divine spirit to keep on keeping on, even though the odds might appear to be against them. It didn't cause them not to care about the present world because they love the next one so much, and it doesn't for us. As you look toward the next world, it drives you and gives you the capacity to see this world transformed. Last of all, stop trying to find the front of the line. Stop it. The key phrase here in their complaint is, you made them equal. You made them the same. And what Jesus is trying to say, it doesn't matter what somebody else is producing or doing. What matters is the call of the master. And all of these started in the same spot with the same master, with the same vineyard, received the same reward. And that should free us from that competition. For why does that person have that and I don't? Why do they have that? Why, why is their life that way and not mine? Why is that? Stop saying those words of complaint. You've made us the same in the sense of you've given us yourself, you've given us the gifts you've given us, but somehow our lives are, are not identical or our lives, I don't have as much as that person. Stop the comparing, stop the comparing and receive the gift of God himself. Stop the comparing and receive the gift that God gives. Stop the comparing. In a few minutes, we'll partake of communion when we partake of communion, it looks a lot like 
what we see here in this parable. People lined up to receive the same reward. People who the world would put at the back of the line or the front of the line. People that in other people's eyes may not fit together. But God has placed us together by his spirit. And so here we line up. We who deserve every one of us to be at the back of the line and receive nothing. And God invites us to the gift of himself. God invites us to the gift of the broken body and blood of Christ shed for us and shed for all who will trust in him. Let's pray.